Well, good morning. That's uh, really cool to see how many growth groups a baker's dozen. That's a good number of groups to start off with. Um, it's a pleasure for me to be with you this morning. I have known the Kellens for many years. In, in fact, I was doing the math on it, and I'm like, oh, it's got to be like at least 25 years. And Sue, I, don't, I hope you're okay with me saying this. It has been almost 40 years that I've known the Kellen family. I grew up in Lakeview in Stoughton, and even when I went into my 20s and moved away, we still had fam uh, families who were members there, so we would come back and visit when we were back for Christmas, and I've kept up with the family and, and got to see their progress. And even when things went down, in uh, Lakeview, I got to watch through that lens, and I was really curious on what was going to happen. And knowing a little bit of their story, like when I saw them come in, and they took this little church, and it grew, and it was healthy, and then they, they built this awesome building, and I thought, man, you know, Jerry could just take a larger church, he could, you know, get paid more money, and nobody would be surprised at that at all. And then I thought, on the other hand, I know church is messy and sometimes it's difficult, and, and they could step away from ministry altogether and nobody would be surprised at that at all. But they didn't choose either one of those. They didn't choose comfort and they didn't choose to run away. Instead, they made the bold decision to plant a church here in Eau Claire. And, and let me remind you, like, they were no spring chickens when they decided to do that either. And that's one of the things I, I love about the Kellens is, is their boldness to do that, to get, to get messy, to do something that was, was not stable because they really want people to know Jesus and they want God's kingdom to expand to the ends of the earth. Sue and, and Jerry are two of my, my ministry heroes, and I, I hope you realize how blessed you've been over the last 15 years of having them here today. It's kind of under that vein that I want us to spend our time this morning, and that's the need for disciple makers. But before we get into the solution, I want a problem cast, because I, I think before you do come up with a solution, it's good to know the problem so we know how to overcome that. Back in 2016, the Barna Research Group did this big study on disciple making, and they asked people in the church, was I supposed to dismiss those guys? <laughs> If I was, I didn't know that. Either that or it just got boring and they're like, you know, let's, kids, back room, let's go. That's fantastic. I'll give them a minute to get out here. Jerry, if you're watching at home, yeah, I'm sure you've done this before as well, so. So the Barna Research Group did the study on, on disciple making and they, they interviewed people in the church and then they interviewed leaders of the churches. And one of the, the questions that got the most interesting feedback is how do you think the church is doing in the area of making disciples? And the results were absolutely fascinating. For people who were attending church, 92% of the people thought that the church was doing a pretty good job of making disciples. I mean, that's, that's good, right? Like we should almost applaud that number because people in the church think that the church is doing a great job of making disciples. However, on the other side of that, leaders in the church, only 1% of them thought that the church was doing a good job of making disciples. Now, that is a major disconnect. If you look at those numbers, 92% and 1%. Like, how could there possibly be that much disconnect? And, and my, my only theory on this is that people in the church, you know, we, we get busy. We, we sometimes just show up on Sundays. And we can look at it and say, yeah, we're doing a pretty good job. 
But the leaders of the church, who are shepherds of the people, who walk with people beside them, see them through the troubles, only 1% of them thought that the church was doing a good job. And I want you to put this in context. This is back in 2016. This is before COVID, mass vaccinations, social distancing, political strife, racial tension, gender issues. It makes me wonder, like, what would that percentage be like today? The sad thing is this isn't a problem out there in the world. These are things that are affecting the church and causing arguments inside the church, division, disunity, splits. And the season is, is still called the, the great resignation because so many pastors have either been asked to step out of ministry or have resigned because of burnout. And I know so many pastors that are hanging on by a thread during this season because of dissension on the board or difficulty with members of the church, and it's just been a difficult season for many reasons. But there are other problems that I see in the church as well, and, and this is kind of where I want to just highlight our time this morning, and I think these are going to become more and more evident in the next few years. So I'm the church planning director for the Forest Lakes District, which, if you're familiar with the Evangelical Free Church of America, Forest Lakes District is our area of Wisconsin. We do have one church in the UP and one church in Dubuque, Iowa, but other than that, we are focused on the state of Wisconsin. And as a church planning director, what I've seen over the last few years is that the church planning well is beginning to dry up. And I think part of the reason for that is that the guys that we just planted the last few years and the families that we've sent, those were people who made a decision to boldly go plant a church before COVID. So anybody who feels called to plant a church right now is somebody that, that during that difficult season said, yeah, yeah, church planning, that sounds really attractive. I'd, I'd like to do that. We're seeing less and less families who are willing to be bold and go plant churches. We've seen uh, elders and, and, and fighting in the elder boards. We've seen uh, men who are less reluctant to go onto elder boards. In children's ministry, we see less and less people who are willing to sign up for children's ministry, whether that's the risk of getting sick or getting COVID. Um, but they're putting that and raising that above helping young people see the Lord. And youth leaders, this is, this is one of the things that's most shocking to me is I've been in conversations with youth leaders and uh, they were talking and agreeing upon the fact that 10 years ago, they used to see people in the youth group all the time, they'd be like, yeah, one day I want to be a youth leader or be in ministry in some capacity. They said they hardly hear that anymore. If that doesn't scare you a little bit, I don't think any of these will. We have a leadership problem in our churches. The church planning and the leader well is drying up, so we need to look back and figure out why this multiplication flow is beginning to slow down and even stop. You know, in my house, when, when spring hits and I go to the outside spigots and I, if I turn one of them on, it's either going to drip a few times or nothing's going to come out of that at all, right? Of course, you guys know that because we live in Wisconsin. You got to turn those off or they're going to freeze and you're going to bust a water line. But I could turn that on full blast and I could just stand there and wait and wonder why no water is coming out. Or I can go back to the source and figure out why no water is actually flowing to that. And I think that's, that's what we, we need to do here as well. Well, if we're having a leadership and church multiplication problem, what is, is causing that baggage and, and, and keeping that multiplication flow 
to get to that source. If you have your Bibles with you, open up to Matthew 9 and verse 35. We're going to look at what I believe is the source of that, and that is our, our failure to properly make disciples and invest in, in leaders in the next generation. But two things about this passage before I read it. First, if you're going to preach a sermon on making disciples, why not just jump to Matthew 28, right? That's, that's where everybody goes. The Great Commission, the greatest disciple-making passage in all of Scripture. And the reason why is because I believe this is the Great Commission before the Great Commission existed. And what I love about this is we're going to actually see the Great Commission in action in this passage. And second, this passage is usually used by overseas missions, if, if probably one of two verses that is most commonly used, and, and rightfully so. Um, but when it's talking about the, the mission field and, and praying for workers and this fruitful harvest, what does that tell you if we hardly ever hear it in our churches today about how we view our own culture as a mission field? So let's read Matthew 9, beginning in verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So before these verses, to give you a little bit of context, if you back up to, to Matthew 5, Jesus gives his, his big sermon on the mount, and there's just so much packed in there, the longest sermon that is recorded in Scripture. And then after that, Jesus goes and he begins this word indeed ministry, and you go and you see him proclaiming the gospel, and he's, he's healing people, and he's raising people from the dead, and he's healing afflictions. He's, he's beginning this word indeed ministry, and then these verses begin, and they kind of sum up what Jesus has already been doing. In verse 35, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. But then in verse 36, it says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Paul Miller, um, who's done a lot of great work, um, he's actually preaching at one of our, our district conferences coming up um, and doing a couple workshops, um, but he's done a lot of great work. He's done the, the Praying Life, if you've ever read that, and he's got a new book called The Praying Church, which is going to be his topic at our upcoming conference. But my, my favorite that he's done is a, is a book and a, a study that came out of that called The Person of Jesus. Has anybody ever heard of that or read that or been through one of these? All right. I'm going to have to do a good job of explaining this because there's not one hand raised if you're watching at home. So Paul Miller, what he does is he goes through and he writes this book on all of Jesus' interactions with people. And the basis of this is he wants to show that through Jesus, how to love others properly. And this book begins with a unit on compassion. And what he sees in Jesus' interaction with people, like if you want to love people, three things happen. You have to see you have to be moved to compassion, and then you have to do something about it. 
those three things. And my favorite example in scripture that, that Miller uses to illustrate this is the widow of Nain. And if you know this story, this, this woman who's a widow, she's already lost her husband. She has no other family except for the son and the son dies and there's this big funeral procession coming out and, and Jesus and his disciples are, are approaching Nain. And this, this procession is, is huge. And, and that's typically what would happen. You know, you get all of the neighbors, even if you didn't really know the person who had lost this and you would come and, and mourn with them and then you had musicians that were walking alongside of them and then they actually paid professional mourners who would wail and they did this so that whoever was mourning could just cry and, and not be embarrassed you know if you do that whole ugly face thing like attention was drawn other places you could just mourn and Jesus sees this, and you know, if, if you were a disciple walking along with him, the tendency is like, wow, there's a big group coming here. Like, let's move over to the side and walk around. And Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus sees this woman who's in great pain and great need, and he beelines for her. And all this procession, these musicians, everybody else, they're just, they part like the Red Seas, and Jesus just walks right up to this woman. And he raises her son from the dead and he hands her son back to her. Jesus sees, he feels compassion, and then he does something about it. It's what we see in our passage here in, in Matthew 9. Uh, Jesus sees. Jesus doesn't nonchalantly look at the crowds and then, and then say, yeah, you know, the crowds were over there somewhere. No, he sees the crowds. I mean, he really sees them. He sees their condition. He sees that they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And what that means is, is two things, really. One is that there wasn't good leadership over them at this time. They were, they were pressed down. They, they were oppressed. They, they were not doing well. And then the other thing that that shows us is, is that they just didn't know who God was. They didn't see so God as their shepherd or their refuge or their strength or their salvation or their peace or their joy. They were missing that component of knowing the Lord as their shepherd. They were harassed and helpless. Doesn't that sound a little like your life before meeting Jesus? Doesn't that sound like the culture around us, especially in this season right now where they're harassed and helpless, confused, scattered, because they don't know the Lord as their shepherd? They didn't know God as a refuge or their shelter, or their comfort or their joy, or their peace. They're aimless. So Jesus here is demonstrating to his disciples on how to love others. As you first see, and then you feel compassion, but it's got to begin with seeing others. I don't know how much this happens in Eau Claire, but down in Madison, like any given day when you pull up to a stoplight, there's a homeless person there giving money. And regardless what you, you think about this, I know other people have uh, convictions about this, but the tendency, if you do not want to help, what's the first thing you do? Right? You don't make eye contact, right? You avoid eye contact at any cost. You know, you fiddle with your radio. Even if you're not listening to the radio, you know, pretend like you're trying to tune something in or pick up your phone or just look busy. And why would we do that? Well, the reason is, is because if we look, 
if we see, if we lock eyes, there's a good chance that we might enter into it and be motivated with some kind of compassion that might actually help us to do something about it. And whether that's whether we don't want to give money or maybe we don't have money to give, we'll avoid eye contact for that reason. This is the problem with social media, isn't it? People can be brutal because you don't see people on social media. It's really easy just to just ignore that face and not have the interaction, and it's easy to be cruel because we don't see others. So let's put ourselves back in chapter nine. Like, why didn't Jesus just send his disciples out? Like, why go through all of this? Why doesn't he just say, like, hey, just go. Like, just, just go into the fields and it'll be good. Because he knows us, right? He knows that we're going to have a hard time connecting in that kind of way. He knows how hard that is going to be to make that line for compassion that actually motivates us to do something about it. So he teaches them that in that moment, look, I want you to see people. I want you to look at them. I want, to, I want you to see their condition. I want you to have empathy. I want you to have compassion for them. And then I want you to do something about it. Look at verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The harvest is plentiful, Jesus says. So a few def definitions here. Plentiful just means a multitude. And I think it'd be really easy to look at this and go, okay, he's talking about the fields here. There's a multitude of fields, right? But that's not what Jesus is using plentiful to describe here. It's, it's actually the harvest. The harvest. And of course, harvest, we live in Wisconsin, so we're pretty familiar with what the harvest means. I grew up on a farm. It's this act of reaping. But what it's figurative of here is for gathering people into the kingdom of God. A plentiful harvest, therefore, means a multitude of people who are taught how to obtain salvation and follow Jesus. And guess what? And also teach others to be able to do the exact same thing. When Jesus sees the crowds, he sees a plentiful harvest. Is this the way we look at the world around us? Does anybody else struggle to see a plentiful harvest? When we go out there, we leave church on Sunday and you go out to a restaurant and grab some lunch, do you see your server as a plentiful harvest? You see people in your workplace as a plentiful harvest? I can tell you that this is not my, my natural tendency when I look around Madison. Anybody who lives in Wisconsin knows that it, Madison is its own planet. And uh, sometimes it's easy for me to look, look at the city as, as my, my enemy. When I'm doing my worst, I will see them as an enemy because they're so much different than I am. But Jesus says, look at them as a plentiful harvest. Look at them as a multitude of people who are harassed and helpless because they don't know the shepherd and then help them meet the shepherd. Jesus tells his disciples to pray that God sends people into this plentiful harvest. And then Jesus sends them in chapter 8, right, in the Great Commission, or chapter 28, we just got to go to the end of the, the book to find and see ascending. No. 
It's right here in the next verse that Jesus actually sends. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. And he called, this is Jesus, Jesus called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Then in verse 5, these 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, verse 7, and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom is of heaven is at hand, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. Jesus just took this word and deed ministry that he'd worked on, and he hands it off to disciples, and he tells them to go. And he sends them out into the mission field. He tells them to pray for workers, and then the ones who are actually praying are the ones that he sends in the next verse. I wonder if they knew that was going to happen when they're praying this. And if they did, I wonder if they would still pray for workers in that kind of way. Jesus tells them to pray for workers, and then the next verse, he sends them into the plentiful harvest themselves. This is the Great Commission before the Great Commission. And the Great Commission isn't just a one-off at the end of the chapter. We, we see this throughout Jesus' ministry. Like, he's developing the Great Commission, and he's sending his disciples. And up to, up to this point, like, Jesus is the only one who's doing this word and deed ministry. And then he sends his disciples out, and he's able to, to have them come back and discuss with them of how it went. And he's training them and handing off this ministry so that when he goes to the right hand of the Father, he has someone carry on this mission to the ends of the earth. You're being sent out into your mission fields to make disciple makers. Will you just pause with me and dream for a moment? I'm, I'm a dreamer. I'm a seven on the Enneagram. My head is always over here and in, in, in dreaming and thinking of some big plan. But dream with me for a moment. When you look at the current reality of a harassed and helpless world, coupled with the problem of, of leadership in our churches, imagine those problems and the shadow of churches that take this verse seriously. Imagine them in the shadow of churches that take seriously Jesus' call to go and make disciple makers of all people. We have 125 churches in our district, all over the state of Wisconsin. Imagine if each one of those took this seriously of making disciple makers, where they were not just places where people gathered to worship on Sundays, but instead were 125 disciple-making factories who constantly sent workers into the harvest. And imagine these 125 churches filled with people who are motivated by compassion to enter their jobs, their gyms, their neighborhoods, wherever God might have them, and make disciple makers. Can you imagine what that would do to our cultural landscape? This isn't something that would happen overnight, right? But, but think about how that would change the culture around us in 10 years from now, how it would change our churches and our culture 20 years from now. I mean, it's stuff like that that gets me excited. Go and make disciple makers. So where do we go with this? And uh, I'm going I'm to give a couple ideas. The interesting thing about making disciples is you want to say, here's how you do it. One, two, three, four, five, six, because every church is different. Every context is different. People are different. But let me just start with this. I'm a high school 
golf coach. Um, I, I coach girls golf. And as a coach, um, you can't wait until your players become freshmen and then try to make them good golfers, right? If you do that, you will never have a good golf team. And, and the good golf teams of the state are the teams that are good every single year. And the reason they're good is because they have a great farm system. Uh, if you know, farm system is kind of baseball terminology of just places to develop young talent. But these golf teams have a great farm system. They start teaching kids to play golf when they're young, and they help them enjoy the game of golf and have fun. And they keep investing in them to the point that when they get into high school, they don't have to make them good golfers because they're already good golfers. So I coach at Oregon, which is just south of Madison, and, and we have a really good team. I'll just say that. Like, we, we were in the top 10 last year and will be probably in the top six this year. But the last two years, we have missed our, our trip to state, even though 12 teams get there, because Wanakee and Middleton are in our conference. Anybody from southern Wisconsin that, that know about Wanakee and, and Middleton? Okay, let me just give you a, a little snapshot of this. In the last five years, Middleton and Wanakee have taken the two spots from our sectional and gone to state. They're so good that out of the 12 teams that go to state, all five of those years, they have placed in the top half. Like not even just barely making it, like they're in the top half of the best golf teams in, in the state. And several times they've gotten second place and Middleton has won state twice out of those five years. And those are the two teams in our sectional. So every year we look at their roster and we say, Oh man, look at, they're losing their best golfer as a senior and graduating and going to college to play golf and they're losing another senior. Like this is the year we take them. And every year they just take somebody from JV and they plug and play and they're as good as they were the year before. Let me just tell you, that's sickening. <laughs> Maybe this is the year we catch them. We will have a good team this year. But they're like this because they have a great farm system. They develop players when they're young. And I want you to picture like what this would look like in our churches, in our 125 churches around the state. If we develop these kind of farm systems in our churches and, and we're brimming at the edges with, with leaders and we send pastors and families, and that's like one of the scariest things when we think about church multiplication is, we're gonna lose all these leaders. Well, what would it look like if we were brimming with so many leaders that we, we just lose all these leaders, lose this pastor, that we just plug and play with leaders who we've developed and disciples that we've made in our churches? My hope is, is that when we get serious about disciple making, our churches will be bubbling over with Christian leaders who want to multiply disciples and see the gospel reach the ends of the earth. And when this happens, our leadership problem will be taken care of. Can you imagine never having to post um, a job description online because there's so many people in your church that can kind of just fill that role? I know this is a pipe dream. This isn't a reality for where we are in the Western church right now. But I can imagine. And from a church planning perspective, my dream is that we don't have to post residencies and try to draw people from other states and denominations, but we will plant from the harvest. We'll stop buying leaders and instead produce them because we are faithful disciple makers.
If our churches are overflowing with disciple makers who are motivated by compassion and eager to be sent out into the harvest, wouldn't that just take care of the disunity and the dysfunction, the multiplication problem, the leadership problem? We can dream, right? But it begins being faithful with the small, with making disciples, and not just making disciples, but making disciple makers in whatever context Jesus has us. So here's what I've got for us. You're sitting there this morning and, and you're thinking, well, there, there's no way that I could take somebody else and like make a disciple. Like, I just don't feel like I could do that. That probably means that you need to be discipled yourself and there's no, there's no shame in that at all. If that's you and you're sitting here this morning and, and you feel like, man, the thought of making disciples, like, that's just scary and frightening. I, I don't have the tools. I'm not equipped to be able to do that. Just go talk to your leadership. They would love to help you do that. You talk to your growth group leader. Let somebody else walk alongside of you and cultivate you to make disciples. And for everyone else, what would need to change in your life for you to feel more confident and equipped to make disciples. You know, during COVID, I found this fascinating, but the Coca-Cola company um, dumped 200 of their brands, and, and perhaps you knew this. I didn't know this because I don't drink soda, uh, but when I, I read the report on that, you're probably like, man, I love Tab, and they got rid of Tab. I don't know if they got rid of Tab. I don't know the, the whole article, by the way. So if you love Tab, don't freak out about that. But they got rid of 200 brands, which was almost half of the things that Coke produced. And the reason why they did that is they found out that, that all of these brands, these, these 200, which was half of their company, only produced about 15% of their well-being and their profits. So half of their focus was on something that only produced 15%. And I, I bring that up because if we wanna make church, um, if we wanna make disciple making a priority, like maybe there's some things that we need to push to the side. Maybe there's some, some things with our schedule that we need to tighten up to be able to provide time to be able to do that. It's, it's the biggest excuse. I use it all the time. You know, nobody has time for that, right? But if we make it a priority, if Jesus' great commission and his last words before he sends us and, and telling us to pray for the self-makers, if it's that important, what isn't worth giving up to make that happen? So I encourage you, look at your schedules. How do you spend your money and your time and your resources? And create space to be able to do that. If you make disciple making a priority, how can you better spend your time? And how can you better put yourself in places to be used by the Lord? And then finally, if you're in leadership in the church, how can the church better equip and mobilize workers for the mission field? I would just challenge you, like, what do your pathways look like? Um, and there's like 97% of churches in, in the U.S. that don't have a clearly defined pathway for what this looks like. I'm hoping that most of our churches in the, in the FLD do that. I know that Jerry and, and Sue think through that. But having a clear and concise and well-drawn-out plan for what it looks like for your church to make disciples is so important. 
as a way to help churches do this on a national level, the EFCA uh, is starting something called Cultivate. And it's not this like one size fits all curriculum that you do for discipleship. Like I said earlier, every church is different. Your context is different. Your people are different. You need to figure out what that looks like for you. But it's just this cohort of church leaders that come together to be able to figure out what a system and a pathway and a pipeline looks for making disciples in your context. And I love that the EFCA is serious about the mission Jesus has called us to. So to wrap this up, to end this, to finally land this plane, I wanna bring us back to our motivation of compassion. This is where Jesus begins this whole thing. Before he even sends people off, before he tells them to pray um, for workers, before he sends them out into the fields, he begins with seeing and feeling compassion. And let me just tell you, like it's one thing to look at others and enter in and feel empathy and, and move to compassion. But let me just tell you, there is no better way to be moved by compassion than looking at the life of Jesus. The Father sends a son for us when we were dead in our sins and our transgressions. When we were lost and there was no way we could save ourselves. When the time had fully come, Jesus sends his son for us. And you got this missional God who the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit to empower and equip us for the ministry that we're called to. And then the triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit send us into the world with this life-changing message of the gospel to go and make disciples of all nations. Church, that's what we're called to. To cheer each other on. Root each other on grab somebody else and, and, and help develop them as someone who follows Jesus and knows Jesus and will help others do the same. And then let's see how that might affect Eau Claire and the rest of the world. Let's pray. God, first I, I personally admit that I do fill my life with just absolute busyness. And sometimes I miss opportunities to be able to focus in and love the things that you love, like lost people who don't know you as their good shepherd. God, I do pray for us. I pray that we might prioritize in this next season, that we might not only see the, the outcome of the church in 10 years if we don't change, but that we would have compassion for others, that we would not turn away and keep a distance from the lost, but we would have compassion for them, that we might see the, the problems and the troubles that they carry and want to help them follow you in better ways. God, equip us through your spirit to be better disciple makers. God, I pray for this church. I pray for Jerry as he recovers from surgery. I pray for their future as a church. And I pray that they would be healthy and continue on the mission that you've called them to. And we pray this in your name. Amen.